listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you something, people. When I was growing up, my mother said, if you don't know the answer to a question, just ask. So for my guest today, I have a very interesting question for him. My guest is Andy Scott, and doing my research, the website is The Suite. You look them up on the internet. Some people call them Sweet. Some people call them The Sweet. And we're going to find out from him because he's the lead guitarist of them and he knows, is it The Sweet or is it Sweet, Andy? Please tell me. Uh, well, it's been both um, across the years. It started off as The Sweet. I mean, there were a lot of bands around uh, in the late 60s, mid to late 60s, like The Kinks, um, The Who, you know, and... Um, then all of a sudden it became quite hip to not really have a the in it. But but certain bands like the Kinks and the Who, they they were stuck with the, the word the. They, it has to be there because otherwise it's just Who and Kinks, you know. But but, but Sweet, um, you know, lent itself to, you know, to, uh, to just being. And it kind of coincided with us um, changing from that early real... Um, pop um, side of the band to becoming a little bit more, um, should we say, what, what we should have been um, with like a rock uh, edge, you know, uh, songs like uh, Ballroom Blitz and um, Action and Fox on the Run and uh, tracks like that. So, um, but hey, we still go places and people have got the suite on the poster and I'm certainly not going to kick off, you know, why would I? <laughs> Right. Now, we, before, before we got in there, we were talking about Philadelphia. And you said you had played the Spectrum, but your first headlining tour, you probably played the Tower Theater. That was a smaller venue that people would go from the Tower and to the Spectrum. What was it like for you to go into a city like the Philadelphia and play the Tower one time? It's a smaller thing. And then moving up to the bigger stadium. Is it a real honor or is it just something that you knew was in the progression of your popularity? Um... I think it's a, a little bit of both. Um, I mean, we all, we'd all heard about the Philly sound, you know, um, before we came over to the States. And, and there were a lot of bands from, from that era, um, especially the, um, the black kind of soul bands, you know, the, 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 the ones that were edging on the, on the side of disco. I find it very difficult to call certain bands, you know, disco bands, because they were pop bands. They just happened to be... Um, you know, uh, black guys who could play better than us. You know, it was it, it, it was that it, it was just that kind of a scene. And I remember us having a night off, and someone said, "Hey, there's like a big soul thing going on at the um, at the Spectrum tonight." And I remember, I think we must have missed a couple of bands, but I, I kind of remember the OJs being being part of it. You know, um, and um, well, I grew up in the in the sort of mid mid to more more towards the, the the latter part of the 60s playing in a um a crossover soul band um and we used to do all of the material from stacks from motown from uh philadelphia you know we we, we did a real cross-section of um of music mixed with a little bit of uh, progressive jazz and thing and think things like this so before i joined sweet you know i i had a quite a wide musical um uh, experience what turned you on to music and what age were you you know we all have stories i'm not a musician 
I interview a lot of musicians, and I always like to hear the stories because I just remember my older brother. We shared a room. He would play certain albums, and I got that taste. And my father would have jazz playing, and, and my my parents always were very. I remember it was a kid. They would take us to these jazz concerts at the high school, and I would hate them. But then years later, I was like, "Thank God!" You know, they really gave me some culture. What was your introduction to music, and and at what point did you decide you wanted to actually pick up a music uh, an instrument? Uh, well, my parents weren't that old. Um, I think you know that they they had us when they were fairly young. Um, and I remember we definitely had a TV and a radiogram, as it was called back then, with a, 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 a record player within it. And you could play all kinds. You could play the, the old 78s if you flipped the, uh, the, the end of the, um, uh, of, the, uh, of, the, of the record arm over. It would, it would play the 78s. And if you turned it the other way, it would play the, the, the 33s and the 45s. But my mum and dad, um, you know, had a fairly substantial record collection, everything from uh, Mario Lanza uh, opera right the way through to um, Elvis Presley and people like Guy Mitchell and um, Johnny Ray. So, you know, we kind of grew up. And then some. Uh, my, my father w w was involved with my grandparents uh, with a shop and uh, he used to do like... The, the newspaper rounds like we used to have over here. Um, and some of the guys that were on that had guitars and they used to, um, they used to come around on a Sunday or after they'd, they'd done their thing, my mum would feed everybody and out would come like a washboard and these a couple of acoustic guitars and they'd be playing like Lonnie Donegan and, um, you know, the, the skiffle type, type stuff. And one of the guys got a new guitar and he left it with us. He said, um, I, I think think your your lads, uh, my father was called Harry, your lads, Harry, could, could might be able to get a tune out of this. And my brother and I used to take it in turns. And it was around the time when over there, uh, you'd have had bands like the, um, the Ventures and um, the Safaris and things like that. Um, but we had um, Cliff Richard and the Shadows. In, in the UK, in, instrumental, and it, it was that it was that moment where the guitar was just about uh, becoming a real prominent instrument. You know, um, before that, it, it had been you know you, you'd seen you know some, uh, some some blues players you know vamping on a on a guitar, or or you'd seen um, uh, some guy like. Um, uh, Chet Atkins or uh, Les Paul, you know, doing these tricks with with a guitar, but all of a sudden, you, you've got that is the main body of the sound of um, of the band, and when the Beatles came, uh, it just opened up a whole a whole vista. And where we were living, we were probably about twenty or thirty miles from Liverpool, so uh, we got a lot of that influence in the early sixties. Now, you, though, I read, you started off on the bass? Yeah, I was a bass player. Um, it's one of these things, like like uh, if you've ever read the, the story of the Beatles or the story of many bands, all the guys get together and they've all got guitars. And then you realize that at some point you've been looking at guys playing an upright bass. But it wasn't really until The Shadows, this band I was talking about, where you saw... 
a, a bass player with a, what looked like a guitar, but it only had four strings on it. This, this is how primitive, remember, it all is. And um, in that moment, you realize somebody's got to be the player of that instrument. And when, when, when the Beatles broke through, I'm thinking to myself, McCartney put, put these such interesting lines on the bass in. Um, I just put my hand up and said, well, I'll be the bass player. And uh, I, in my area, within, a, within about three years, um, I'm not really, um, should we say, uh, bigging myself up, but I became one of the guys that people wanted in their band. And I was only about 15, you know, and, and I'm thinking 15 or 16, and I'm thinking... Uh, this is pretty good, and it, it wasn't really until that post-soul band that I was talking about um, that actually won some talent competitions on uh, on television that we we supported Jimi Hendrix um, a, um, up in the north of England in '67 on his very first dates in um, in the UK, and I saw something as did a couple of other members of my band. And that soul band didn't last months after that. We totally changed our tack. And because I could still play the guitar, that was my starting point in 67 of picking the guitar up for real and becoming a guitar player again. Now, you said you saw something. I'm just, you know, everyone talks about Hendrix. What did you see that just... It must have been an epiphany to you, but what was it? I mean, what you know? I mean, people. I'm I'm 56. No one I know really saw Hendrix play. You guys opened for him, and you're young guys, and you're you're at that age where you're you know you take a lot in. What was it like seeing him, and what made it? What made him change your view? Um, I'd heard Hey Joe on the radio. Um, I'd seen him do a TV show, so I. I was kind of more in the know than a couple of the other guys in the band. And uh, one of the guys um, came rushing into our dressing room. This is um, uh, just after we've been on stage. We're coming off stage. And one of the guys said, there's this huge, big black guy with hair everywhere trying to get in through the back door. And I went, you idiot, that's Jimi Hendrix. So I went rushing out there and let them in. And I won't tell you some of the words that was used. Where's that guy that wouldn't let us in? And, and I just said, look, you know. And, and then some, their road manager came down, took them to the, the, the room that they were using. And as they stood, they'd driven up. As they were, they were on stage within like 10 minutes. And I'm on the side of the stage. I'm literally three meters from the guy, 10 feet away, you know, hidden behind a curtain. Uh, uh, on his side of the stage and the things that he was doing it's it's like saying was he the best guitar player no but i'd never heard anybody get that out of a guitar before um it's like jeff beck um you know the, the sounds and we we try and pick up from everything that we hear you know regardless of who it is because you know as a guitar player you hear something and you think i can't do that i'd like to i'd like, like to be able to do that and but from the side of the stage there, um, I knew... Uh, I'm watching the audience starting to leave because this audience were there. It's a dance hall. And the band that had been... Us, that had been on before Hendrix and had them all up dancing and singing along and clapping. Hendrix has come on and it's a performance. It, it, it should have been a... 
more like a theatre or like a, a, a fest festival. But he, he's just booked. He's just booked into these dance halls like we all were at the time. And he's um, uh, to finish his set. He just decided. He started to play the national anthem, thinking, "Well, if you're going to leave, I'll play the national anthem." <laughs> but he did a very clever thing. The number one record around that time was "Wild Thing" by the Trogs, um, and he turned it around and started to play "Wild Thing" in a kind of very heavy uh, blues rock kind of a way, and that just floored me. I just kind of went, "That's what I want to be." I, I. I I can't be organized wearing, you know, all of us wearing similar jackets and, you know, all of us doing the, um, you know, like the, um, the the pretty boy routine. You know, you, you have to go down this this route. And uh, we turned that, um, uh, what I would call probably a, a slightly progressive soul band into a very progressive rock band called the Elastic Band. Now... How do you get from Elastic Band and you're playing and you're getting better at guitar because you saw a great, you know, you just saw something, eyes wide open. At what point, how does, how does, how does it come about that you end up being in Sweet? Um, the Elastic Band uh, were uh, really liked by the BBC and various TV companies. Uh, we'd even done theme music and um, library music that was used in certain television shows because um, you couldn't play the hits of the day on a soap opera, for example. You know, one of these um, uh, soaps that um, everybody kind of watched. But you wanted music that sounded like maybe Jethro Tull or, or Cream or in the background or on, on the radio. So my band would, would, would do things like this. Um, I'm doing uh, the band, sorry, and 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 we're we're doing these uh, BBC roadshows where they they went to um, coastal resorts um, once a week uh, on a Saturday morning from nine till twelve, and they they had to have a live band. It was all part of the musicians' union thing, playing on those events, and we used to get one every month. And it, it could be anywhere in, in Britain. It could be in the south, it could be in the north, it could be in Wales, it could be in Scotland. And Sweet actually had formed and had a single out. And they came on one of the shows that we were performing at. And I got chatting to them uh, and said, good luck with the single, you know, all that kind of stuff. And who knew that, well, about a year later, that they'd be looking for a guitar player and the band that I was in, uh, was starting to split up. So it's just um, being in the right place at the right time, I guess. And, and having, uh, if, if the Elastic Band had not split up, I probably would, well, I wouldn't. I would never have um, gone to C-Suite as, you know, with the possibility of me joining. Now, how did you find out about the audition? Because, you know, you always, now everything's on the internet. And we all know that. And then, you know, there used to be in New York City, like the, the Melody Maker, the magazines, you know, all the different stuff in, in the Village Voice. How did you find out? Was it just word of mouth or was there publications in, you know, England that were sitting there saying bands looking for guitarists? Uh, it was the Melody Maker. Um, my brother and I had moved to London 
we'd, we'd had a, a spell in the backing band for Paul McCartney's brother, Mike McCartney, in, in his band, The Scaffold. And we joined a band in London. But that, you see, things, things never really lasted that long if, if, if things weren't, weren't happening. Um, whereas where I came from in North Wales, you seem to stick at it regardless. Do you know what I mean? Because back then, you, even if you didn't have a record contract, you could have a nice following in North Wales. You could have a couple of hundred people coming to your shows every, every show that, that you did. And you didn't even have um, any kind of deal or anything. But we're now living in London. We don't want to go back to North Wales. The two of us have started to think, well, there's only one way out here. We need to start looking to see if what's out there. And I was very lucky. Um, a friend of mine who was uh, a road manager for uh, Yes, the band Yes, a Welsh guy, he used to call me up knowing that I might not have got hold of the Melody Maker and he knew what, what was going on. And he rang me up um, on this Thursday night because he got an early copy of the Melody Maker. He said, I think there's a band in there that would suit you down to the ground. They're looking for a vocalist, a, a guy who plays guitar with a great voice. And he said, I know this this would kind of suit you. They're, they're calling themselves um, like a, a, a hip-hop band. And, and that was the suite. Um, uh, and I went along and they went, ah, we've met you before. And um, it kind of gelled from there onwards. Um, they held two auditions. I was at the first one and at the top of the list. But they felt that because there were other guys who couldn't make that first one, they had to see everybody who had responded. And I went along to the second audition and was sat there with the singer, Brian, and each time somebody came in, Brian would say to me, nah, he's wrong. <laughs> and so I, I knew that the things were, were progressing, you know, in the right way, because even though they were releasing pop records, I knew where they wanted, well, we, we knew where we wanted to be musically. And it, it was a matter of trying to, it, it's like a lot of things, if you're not in, you can't change anything. So, you know, once we got the ball rolling and we had a following, it's a matter of trying to take your audience with you. And I think we were one of the lucky ones because many bands who tried to do this kind of thing uh, failed. Um, but, you know, luckily Sweet didn't. You know, we, we, we're still here. Now, how did the record company <clears throat> react in the beginning when you wanted to switch? You know, when you sat there and you guys, you know, you probably had you under a contract and they, they signed you for one thing, but thank God you guys changed it because the music was great. But, I mean, how did they react? Did, they, did you guys just all the band go say, hey, here's the deal. Here's our next album. I hope you like it. Um, there was a bit of that, but we were never signed and still are not ever signed directly to a record label. We, all, we were one of the first out of the block where... Um, the people behind us had formed a production company of which the suite were part of. So all our material was on a, on a kind of um, lease situation whereby um, we were kind of in control, uh, but the record company, A&R guys, would say, I don't think you've got a hit there, you know, and they, they didn't do that until later in, in our career, um, you know, when, when even Mike Chapman, one of the songwriters wanted to experiment. Um, 
So we didn't get a lot of interference, but we were kind of controlled a little bit by the producer, Phil, Phil Wayneman. It wasn't until we released our first real album, which became uh, Desolation Boulevard in, in, um, in the Americas. Uh, it was called Sweet Fanny Adams in, um, in the UK. And the FA of Sweet Fanny Adams uh, we wanted to call the album something different that begins with an F and an A, and they wouldn't have it. Um, they said that's far too um, out there, you know, um, and far too rude. Uh, little did they know that the Sex Pistols were coming in about three or four years' time. So um, we, we, we toned it down, and there is a very uh, old-fashioned saying called Sweet Fanny Adams, which means you're not going to get anything, you know, uh, that's it, nothing. Sweet Fanny Adams. Um, and um, uh, from there, um, things took a turn for the better because if you turned our singles, the pop singles over, you got a, a band that sounded more like Led Zeppelin or Deep Purple or, you know, something like that on the B side. Um, and uh, the A side was the, the hit that most people heard. But what certain DJs started to do in the UK was flip the record over on a on their evening shows like after eight o'clock at night and there were a couple of quite heavy duty djs who were doing this they were saying i know you're, you're not going to like this but th you need to listen to this and then make your judgment and they would play the b-side of our latest hit uh, which was great because we were then getting um a little bit of help to change you know now when did you guys start cultivating your look? You know, you had the look. You had the, the cool outfits. Was that from the get-go? And I always wonder, where do, you know, before you make it big, where do where do rock stars shop? In the very, very beginning, when we first started to have hits, um, we were just going down the King's Road, finding a boutique that had maybe a, a slightly flash jacket or, uh, or tops. And then one of our songwriter managers found a deal with a couple of shops in Kensington. One of them was Mr. Freedom, which was multicolored tops, you know, yellows and reds and blues and greens and silver and, um, and all, all, all kinds. Of, I hated it, but um, it was like a deal, you know, wear, wear this, you can have as much as you want. So there are, there are some early photos of us all wearing this stuff. And these photos still appear today. When, it, when people go into the library, they go, oh, yeah, they look suitably stupid there. We'll use that. And, and I find that, you see, you should, oh, you know, I can't blame Getty or, or these other, you know, uh, photo agencies. They, they, they pick up the photos and, you know, we've all got a living to make. But as soon as we met Mark Bolan um, at the end of 71, early 72, we knew that there was a change coming because this guy looked right. Everything. The hair we already had because Brian Connolly, that haircut, you know, I mean, look, you know, I mean, I've, I've still got my hair and it still falls the way that it, it used to. Um, and, um, but Brian, he formulated that sort of look you know the and and slightly slightly turned under you know right. um 
and and it it was it was an original, a very good look, and we used to like make the back of the heads look bigger than it was. You know, it was um, um, a work of art of of be, being able to do that back then. You know, almost fifty years ago, and and I'm thinking, right, how can we take this a stage further? And you bump into Mark Boland, and then he tells you where you should go to shop, the exact place. Uh, to get a silver leather suit made or, you know, to um, to buy the right jacket or which shop to go to, to put that little bit of sparkly stuff in your hair so that as you walk around, people think that there's this, especially if you've got a, a light on it, it, you know, your hair sparkles. And for two years, from 72 to 73, seven, early 74, um, we walked around looking like... Um, drag queens you know um rupaul but not just ordinary drag queens we had the boots this big so we were six foot three um uh six foot six drag queens intimidating people you know that's what we looked like people used to keep away from us you know we'd walk into a place and um it would be oh god you know and i remember us getting on an airplane um to fly uh, somewhere out to either Japan or somewhere east and we'd come straight from the BBC TV studios dressed as we were and the, the British Airways staff took one look at us and we're thinking don't worry we're going to get changed as soon as we can to, for the flight you know we're, we're certainly not travelling like this in these boots and this and this weird stuff on our faces so it was um, yeah it was a was an interesting period but that's the period that people seem to want to draw on and the word glam rock keeps keeps coming up and you know here we are 50 years later and people still ask me have you got your leather suits will you be wearing those on the next tour and i'm thinking to myself would a man of 70 still be wearing a silver leather suit and 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 high heels realistically come on you know now, at what point, when did you feel that your, the band Suite was taking off? Because you became huge. But was there a certain time where you said, you know what, things are about to change for us? Um, we were, once we were uh, playing everything on our records in 72, uh, we had um, a producer who came from the old style, late 60s, session three hours that's it studios are expensive we go in for three hours and we come out with a finished um, material um whereas um we were a little bit more experimental and um he he felt that he wouldn't be able to those pop singles he, he might not be able to get everything that he wanted from the band in that three hour session well, the songwriter, Mike Chapman especially, um, started to be on our side and there was uh, an almighty, um, should we say, discussion at some point. And um, when Little Willie uh, was finished, um, with us doing a couple of things, but um, that was still the last of the old-style session uh, songs, uh, we had to do a version of Little Willie for the television and our version 
was equally as good, and if not, a little bit better. And people were starting to say, uh, when it was being released in America, which version are we going to release? And they ended up releasing the, you know, the original one, um, which became a hit in the States. But by this time, we had already released um, uh, Hellraiser, Blockbuster and Hellraiser. And we, were, we had the Ballroom Blitz ready to go as well. So uh, Little Willie felt a bit yesterday, you know? Um, we, we'd, we'd also had um, bigger hits um, in, in the UK with uh, Wigwam Bam and uh, Blockbuster was a number one and Hellraiser was a number two. And we're thinking, um, this, is, this is where it's kind of taking off. And we held back for a year before we came to America. And that's when um, Blitz and Fox broke in 74, 75. Um, and we were, we were kind of a year behind slightly um, in, in the States. Uh, but we soon caught up, you know, very, very quickly, um, uh, w you know, with, with our recordings. Uh, but I think part of the problem with, you know, with us being more more of a worldwide band instead of just thinking America and England or whatever. Um, you need to be in America for a long time to break through properly and possibly even live there with the possibility that your home territory kind of forgets about you, you know? And it was starting to happen in that part of the 70s where we were spending so much time in America touring and uh, releasing stuff that uh, maybe wasn't being as successful as it was in Europe and in um, uh, in in Australia or Japan. And you're thinking, um, we need to really think about this in depth. And uh, it was a it was a hard wrench, but we had to go back to Europe and start um, and start start doing things over there. And after Brian Connolly left the band in '79, things musically was so good yet the band itself uh, as a focus point as a um as, as an outfit musically it was the best uh, we, we'd had but i think something went missing you know when brian left you know we didn't have the the front the front man anymore we were doing it uh, amongst the three of us with a keyboard player which was a little bit more you know kind of retro and pro progressive prog rock but we'd seen bands like um uh, like rush carry it off so we were thinking hey you know if the, if, if the music's right you know we'll be all right but um in the end it didn't quite work out like that well in the, in the early days what was it like when you guys started touring and then you started playing bigger venues as a musician i mean you you show up for every show I mean, that's, you do that, and it's just because you love the music. But is there pressures on you as, like you said, you went from playing the Tower Theater to the Spectrum, so you're playing to a bigger audience. Is there a pressure where you know you have to keep delivering or selling out because if you don't sell the stadium out, you might have to go to back to the smaller ones? Does that go through a musician's mind at all when they're at the peak of your popularity like you guys were? Um that time probably not but in reality it's what happens um you um you're playing now we're playing the biggest halls in europe before we come to america 
and we're already started on our first headline tour playing places like as you say the tower theater the aragon in um uh, chicago and the uh, the palladium in new york and you know it's these venues are smaller than we're, we're playing in germany austria switzerland holland um england and it's not a problem and by this time we have had probably one of the best PA systems along the lines of like Pink Floyd um, since about 1973-74. So we're flying that everywhere with us uh, around the, the country. So you can imagine what the costings are. Uh, but very, we were very lucky. We were sponsored by British Airways. So the crew used to take all the gear to, to the, the, the airport and it used to get put on a pallet and shoved in the, in the bottom of a uh, of a 747 and the crew would fly out a few days early sort it all out and then there'd be trucks on the road you know over in the states but probably our costings were for more arenas than for um theaters um but you can't help that um the, the other thing on that very first headlining tour we had eric carmen as our main support band and he had a song that went to number one while he was on the road with us and I've read uh, a blog um, from not that long ago where they asked him, you know, about his early touring. And he said, oh, one of the worst experiences I ever had was touring with Sweet, um, where I had a number one record and I'm the support band for them. And he said they they were completely, um, you know, oblivious as to, as to you know, who, who I was and what I was doing. And, and, I, and I have to tell you, I don't remember really meeting him that much because every time he finished playing, he was off going to the next gig, probably. I, I don't know. You know, we, don't, we, we didn't really hang out. My only living memories of things like that is he had a white grand piano that he was carrying around with him. So you can imagine that being heaved on and off the stage before we played every night and, the, and, and, and a piano tuner coming in you know, while we're trying to sound check and he's trying to tune a bloody piano somewhere, you know, it, it, honestly, it was, um, see, those are the funny, funny bits, you know, but the, you know, the, the reality of touring is you, when you move up to the arena, everything um, is, um, should run a little bit, a little bit smoother. Being the support band in, a, in an arena is not so good. You, you, you cannot be precious, especially when you're supporting bands like um, Alice Cooper and Kiss, because they were carrying their own stages around, never mind anything else. So the amount of space you were given on those stages with their um, paraphernalia uh, was, we, we ended up putting our rigs down the side of the stage instead of putting them on the stage, had them on the side facing across at us because that was the only real space for for all that kind of stuff uh, and and in reality it worked okay because it didn't get in the way of anything that that, that they wanted positioned you know it was one of these you know we want to monitor there or we, we cut a hole in the stage there you can't stand there because you'll fall down down a hole you know it's, it's where somebody was brought up and down so you know it was um uh it, it gets more difficult when you've been in the bigger halls and now you've got to come down and play in the smaller ones, 
You've just got to get your head round it and you go backwards with your equipment. You simplify it. You don't have this wall of equipment across the back anymore. You're back to using the kind of gear that you were using in the studio. You know, like the little um, the little combos and, and things like that. It's, it's when you've got your head around that that you realize that um, you're able to, to do anything. And, and I have to say, you know, um, when Mick and I reformed the band in the 80s, we were doing a mixture of everything from the biggest of festivals right the way down, um, you know, to, to fairly small clubs holding about three or four or 500 people. But we then realized that you didn't have to change the equipment that much because by this time, the PA companies and the, the PA systems on a lot of these shows, you could, you could have a smallish rig and still be able to hear it because the PA is so good and you can have a PA speaker with what with with your gear in it you know so that you can even if you're not standing near it you can still hear it you know um which was definitely not around in the 60s it has changed so much man it, it is crazy when you think about it and you think the concerts that it would go to now ballroom blitz is a very popular song and and it's still people everyone knows it everyone knows it. that's one of the songs that everybody knows did you guys ad lib the beginning when you said your names or was that in a writing because you all say, ready, Andy, and was that planned, or was that just something the studio you guys just said, you know what, this would be cool, because people remember that, they remember the name, I was at my buddy's house the other night, we had a few cocktails, and I said, put on some, put on some sweet, and we're just digging it, and we were like, so how did that come up, how did the names, the name call off come up? Um, Mike Chapman, the guy who wrote that song, had been to a, a sweet show, and he'd seen us coming on stage i used to do this rather camp uh intro um to get the band on stage um and i would go on stage and basically you know get the audience laughing and and stuff oh, no, not not the full comedian you know for about a minute and they'd all be shouting where's brian where's and i'd go oh you want to see the other guys okay and and i'd invite mick onto stage and then he and i would then say come on steve uh, and then Brian had come on, and we'd start um, at that point um, uh, with whatever the hit of the day was. So let's say it was Blockbuster, um, and, um, and and we'd be off. But um, Mike Chapman kind of remembered this, and on his demo, uh, when, when I first heard the song, um, he played it to me on an acoustic guitar. I said, that is going down the right route. But I said, let us kick it around in a rehearsal room. So we did it as a rehearsal uh, recording. And when we heard his final demo, he actually had Brian going, are you ready, Steve? Andy? Mick? And then it was like, well, come on, fellas, let's go. He actually done it on the demo. And we all fell about thinking, our first thoughts were, you can't do that, surely. <laughs> you know, but hey, it's, it's stuck. Nobody else has done that, have they? Yeah, it's one of those things you just hear and you remember it and you're right. It's, it's like roll call and you're like, oh, wow. And it's, it's still, it's still, people just still love it. Now, now you wrote, you uh, co-wrote Love is Like Oxygen, right? 
Now, did you do the lyrics or the music? Or how, how did your guys' writing come up when those guys weren't writing? How did you divvy up writing writing responsibilities? Or did you guys just sit there and someone wrote something and said, you like this? How did that work? Well, as the guitar player, I was the main writer. Um, most of the ideas, guitar riffs, um, chords, um, even Fox on the Run was almost a complete song when I brought it to the band. Um, but... Uh, it could be anyway. The B-sides, I tried to make them as band-orientated as possible, but more often than not, an idea had to, be, had to be started. And when I first joined the band, I still had half a dozen ideas from the previous band that I'd been in that, 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 that had never been presented to them. Uh, so those early B-sides were probably ideas that I'd already had. Um, it's not until we get to... Um, the, the album, Sweet Fanny Adams, where songwriting, um, we've now realized that, you know, songwriting, it, it, well, it, it's an art. Uh, and I, I used to lock myself away in my garage um, in the house that I had. Uh, I didn't have a room to record in uh, when I first moved into this house. So uh, we had a, a garage that was too small for the car. So I turned that into like a, a studio, the old fashioned way, nailing carpets on the wall and all, all that kind of stuff um and i used to do my demos in there and like a lot of my demos became album tracks um love is that oxygen was slightly different though uh while we were um out on the road uh, on tour i used to get down to breakfast fairly early and if there was a piano anywhere our sound engineer the guy who co-wrote the song with me he, he could play a little bit of piano, a little bit of jazz, a little bit of... Um, he loved bands like Supertramp and, you know, band, bands with um, with something uh, 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 commercial but different, you know, al almost symphonic. And he was playing these double-tempo piano parts this one morning and, and I had my um, uh, portable tape deck with me and I just said, look, why don't, why don't you just put that idea and that idea onto my tape deck for me. And he did. And he put these couple of chord pro progressions with the double tempo, and the thing that was the en intro that went da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da, you know, um, and, and I thought, right, I'm going to try and do something with that, and I told him I would. He then asked me a few months later and said, have you done anything? I said, no, I haven't been able to find the lyric or the... Or, or how it could knit together. I then went back looking through my lyric book and I found these lyrics, Love is Like Oxygen, that I'd written down at some point. You get too much, you get too high, not enough, you're going to die. And I thought, this might just fit that because it's melancholy, it's... it's um, but, but the song itself... It, I, I like putting lyrics that are, should we say, just a little bit, you know... Um, back uh, in, in, you know, you like Baker Street. You know, you uh, it's a fairly uplifting tune, but the you know the idea is um, that you're um, uh, thinking about the past, and and love is that oxygen was, you know, it's it's almost like um, you, you're in you, you've had a breakup that, that, that that's done you in a little bit, you know, but 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 you're still alive and you still need to breathe and you know and uh, all that kind of stuff. Well, the the actual tune was quite uplifting with these lyrics that are a little bit uh, baleful, you know? 
and and it really kind of worked. And I I went home uh, over a weekend and just put a demo together. And when I arrived back on Monday, um, this you have to understand this was after playing the album to the record company, and somebody there said there's some good stuff on there, but I'm not sure whether we actually have you know the old um, um, words from a record company. I don't hear the single, man. <laughs> you know, uh, and I, we, I came back in on the Monday, and everybody, and even though it was six minutes long, everybody kind of went, "Well, that's it." And remember, this was after about a year after um, um, Bohemian Rhapsody. So I have to thank Queen from a point of view of getting a long track, you know, acceptable, you know, by radio. Because without that, maybe Love Is the Oxygen wouldn't have had the opportunity. There were people who were quite happy to play it as a six-minute song, even though we'd done the three-and-a-half-minute edit, you know, three minutes 40 or whatever it is, edit. There were still people out there who wanted to play the whole thing in its entirety. Does that piss you off as a songwriter when, when they want to do the edit, when they want to take it from six minutes to three minutes and 40 seconds? As someone who created this and had the vision, does that get you low? boil your blood a little bit because you're like wait a second uh, you're messing it up no i'm not precious uh, i'm a believer that um uh, you can be um a huge fish in a very very small pond because you haven't really listened to anybody um but but if if somebody is going to help push one of the songs forward because they have this format where they can only play three-minute songs. I mean, what you've got to remember is the Beatles and back in the 60s, some of those songs were only two and a half minutes long, you know? So so, so to even have a song that's three minutes 40 is, um, is kind of out there a little bit. And Fox on the Run was knocking on the door of four minutes, you know? So um, from a point of view uh, as a songwriter, I suppose if I was Jimmy Webb writing... Um, uh, Macarthur Park or, um, you know, the uh, American Pie, something like that. And somebody said, can we just cut, you know, and he's written this, it's poetry, you know, lyrically from from, from, from start to finish. Where are you going to do the edit? Where, where it kind of makes sense. Do you know what I mean? You, you can't with things like that. And I would understand them maybe getting a little bit precious. Um, it's like classical composers, you know. Um, well, you know the old joke about Mozart. You know, it, it's good, mate, but there's too many notes. You know, it's um, it, it it's very easy to um, to be critical, but pop music, it, in its very essence, the word pop is popular. So, if it's pop music, you want the most. You want it to be part of the most popular um, thing, which is people listening to it so no i don't have a problem with editing as long as i can do the edit there you go that's important what happened why why did you guys break up what happened to the band breaking up is the wrong um words here um we come to a point i think mick tucker our drummer kind of summed it up he said we kind of run out of road we were um in England, we, we'd had we just had one of the most successful tours that we'd had in 81, um, where we played the Lyceum Ballroom, which is a real class. It's like the Palladium in 
New York. It's that um, iconic venue, you know. Um, we had um, uh, an array of support bands. Uh, Duran Duran was supposed to be one of our support bands that night. They just didn't show up, so everybody was moved up the bill one, and we played a longer set. Um, my agent said um, he was in the audience up on the balcony, and he said he's never felt the balcony. He said it was moving. And this is a solid balcony, he said, with the, the crowd that was up there. He said, I realized that if that's coming down, I don't want to be on there. So he came down and came on the side of the stage from then onwards. Um, we did one of the most successful tours that we've done in the UK. And then Steve Priest, um, even though we knew he was going back to America, kind of tells us at the Glasgow University gig uh, at the very end of, of 81, um, I'm probably not coming back from America. That's it for me. And we said, well, the band isn't over, is it? You know, and he said, well, let's see. Let's see what happens. And, well, after that, um, the record company, the album that should have been released from the record company didn't get released. It got released, as someone pointed out, posthumously. There was no band there to, to kind of promote it. So the Identity Crisis album kind of escaped. And it wasn't even um, uh, the finished mixes that had been delivered to the um, to the record company. We had a manager, a business manager, who said the last bit of money that, that they owe us, uh, we need to get that out of them, do some mixes. So I'm in the studio, I'm the producer, I've mixed. I've, they're nice mixes, they're good mixes, but they're not the final ones. We gave. He said, "Don't worry, you'll have you'll have chance to you know do proper mixes before it's released." Next thing I knew, I had a little um, probably a, a, a telegram back then, you know, telling me that the album's out and that you know what the sales are, and and I'm going, "What album?" So I've then realised that our business manager has moved on. He's now looking after uh, status quo, um, and our American manager is. Um, managing Sammy Hagar and uh, is now managing Van Halen. So I've been, I've been producing and making some solo recordings and I'm finding all of this out because um, I've suddenly realised that we're not in total, we now really are in total hiatus, we're not just resting. So lots of meetings went on um, you know, and, and I've realized and I, I remember calling Steve up and saying, because um, there was um, uh, a greatest hits that had gone into the charts and everybody was going to be at some record signing. And he comes over and he basically says, look, I hated touring the first time. What would make you think I would like it now? And I said, well, Mick and I are thinking of getting the band back on the road. And he said, let me think about it. So we made all the all the plans to put the band back together. This is 84. Uh, we had some dates in Australia where we were going to, the other side of the world, to get the, the band back on the road. And we found some great guys. The original singer from um, Iron Maiden. Um, we had Phil Lanzen, who was with a band called Grand Prix, who's now with Uriah Heat on keyboards. Um, uh, there was Mick Tucker on drums, me on guitar. And we went to Australia, and it, and it was fantastic, and hoping that Steve would come and join us, and he didn't. And 
I've been on the road ever since, since 1985, you know, in one form or another, whether it be with Mick. Uh, Mick fell ill in the early 90s, so, you know, he wasn't on the road with me anymore. And it's been like a one-man band, one-man suite from, from the original band since about 91, 92. So it's, um, it's what it is. Um, and the thing that drives you along is the fact that there are people out there that still want to hear the sweet songs and 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 they, they come to gigs and you know we have a fantastic time and it's um, <laughs> for want of, of, a, of a better thing that when the when the original band was hot it was on fire but when we were having one of those nights where it wasn't quite so hot it wasn't so hot now we don't have those kind of nights all the nights are pretty hot you know they're all they're all pretty good and it's um i think it's a matter of following a template now whereas back then we always had um moments in the set which could go like this you know you um i mean the who had a song called magic bus and you never knew how long it would be you know it would jam along a little bit well we had like intros to songs like Blockbuster, where it starts off like a blues and you just don't know how long it's going to go. Um, and, and the middle section of a song called Done Me Wrong All Right could uh, go off into tangents. If Mick hit some, did something on the drum, I would go, right, that's where we're going, is it? You know. Um, whereas now, you can't get involved with that because you know when you do festivals, they want to hear the hits. And when you do your own shows, they want to hear something they want to hear the hits but they also want to hear something a little bit fresh but they want to hear it like they remember it you know they, um if, if it's off an album they want to hear it like like the album i remember seeing an interview with paul mccartney when he um, came back on the road or oh, must be 20 20 years ago now um you know with this band the, the, that he has now um maybe it's longer longer than that maybe it's 25 years and, and he came out in this interview and basically said, I used to do extended intros and we used to do bits in the middle that would extend Beatles songs or songs, McCartney songs. And I realized the audience, you know, were wandering about. And you've got to remember, they remember all those Beatles hits the way they remember them. And that's how you have to play them. And that struck a chord with me. And we went back to the drawing board and, this must be 20 years ago, 20, yeah, about, just about 20 years ago. And ever since then, we've been, you know, playing our hits the way people remember them. Now, I want to ask you about Isolation Boulevard. Tell me about that album, because it's, 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 uh, you did it during isolation. You did it during the pandemic. Tell me about the album. Tell, tell, tell me, you know, why you decided to make it and what, why it's got to be special to you. Um, we, we still owe Sony, our record company, uh, an album of new material. Um, but we also are fairly free, you know, to do things, um, our own way. Um, it's not as if we're tied and signed. It's just that we have a very good relationship with Sony and they will get the next new material album. We were in lockdown. There was no way I could get the band together and the suite record best when we're all together. So there was only one way we were going to be able to put a, 
uh, an album out, and that was by going over material that we all knew that we'd been touring with. Hence, that's why there's quite a few hits on, on Isolation Boulevard. We have a band that's um, only been in existence with this particular lineup with the new singer since nine, uh, 2019. Um, our, our previous singer um, formed um, like a Crosby, Stills and Nash type of um, outfit, and I don't. I think he was quite surprised that it kind of took off, and things were clashing. We needed we needed to change the band. I also realised that we don't have the new singer singing any of the old hits on any kind of recording. So it was a, a natural thing to find some tracks that were unused from live record. You won't believe how many live drum tracks there are on there from live uh, gigs that we've um, uh, edited and you know put together as uh, as part of the backing track. From once we'd found like ten good drum tracks and uh, and and things things that we could work with we got the bass player to put his bits on i did some fresh guitars um we lifted some backing vocals from from a couple of live recordings that we've got of the band but also um everybody remotely like the lead singer and the bass player who also sing were sending vocals in so we became like an assembly plant you know um getting bits from uh, from everywhere and because you're able to do it like this and the whole band were in agreement, it probably sounds tighter and better than the band when it plays together because you have the computer right. to, pull it, to pull it all in. Whereas if the band had all played together like, like we would normally, there'd always be a little thing kicking somewhere, you know, because that's, that's what musicians do. You know, we don't play like a session, like this is it, These are the, this is the template. But because we had the ability to do that, and an engineer who was so quick on the computer, you know, putting the, the, the magic, you know, um, cloud o over everything, and it all kind of does this, magically becomes tight. You know, there's a downbeat where it should be. There's, there's nothing out of place. And in some ways... I was a bit taken aback because I thought thought to myself, God, I, I, hope, I hope people like this. Uh, and uh, to a man, everybody has said it's one of the best things they've heard from us. So, you know, um, I'll take that. Well, that's awesome. Now, do you have any tour dates? I mean, what, what's your thought? I mean, it's things that seem to be opening up. Um, it may be hard to get in America right now. I don't know. But what is what is your future plans for Sweet? Uh, we have a, a tour at the end of this year in the UK. We've got about 16, 18 dates, um, uh, November, December. Um, we also have some festivals in Europe and one major thing um, in, well, near where I live. Uh, I'm a prostate cancer. Um, uh, I'm 11 years since, since my treatment. So I'm, uh, I'm do, doing pretty good. My numbers are okay. And we run a, a, um, a fundraiser festival called Rock Against Cancer, um, where we've had some very big artists like Brian May and Jeff Beck and 10CC, um, Billy Ocean, um, uh, Sweet play every other year. And it's, it's a two-stager, two-day event. 
and we've raised, you know, something like a quarter of a million, you know, for, for cancer, you know, fundraising. And this is going to happen in September. And I think this probably will be our first event, you know, that we will play at. I'm still not sure whether Europe will have caught up by then because we have some festivals in September and some um, some dates in October in uh, in Europe, which I, I just don't... We're already seeing things in June, July being moved to 2022 already. So I think you, one can take the lead from that. Um, we also have a plan. Um, we have a, a promoter who wants to do the invasion 2021, he was calling it, uh, the reinvasion of, um, of of the British coming back to America. And there are three bands that he has in mind, and we are one of them, to do like a, a three-act bill to come into America and, and play all those uh, big theatres, small arenas, and um, probably be out there for a couple of months, you know. But I don't think that will happen until 2022. And that will be good anyway, because it won't be until 2022 where we will have a new album of new material anyway. So so things are, as you rightly said, Steve, things are looking really good. That's awesome, Andy. I want to thank you so much for coming on today. People, go to the website. It's The Suite, the website. Don't get fooled. I asked that question. It's thesuite.com. It's a really good website. It has everything. It has information about uh, about isolation uh, boulevard, so check it out. Just go back and listen. You know, hang out. Have yourself a cocktail, throw in some sweet, and I tell you, it's really, it's just, it, they're, they're a great band. So people, follow, go to the website, check them out, buy their albums, uh, listen to their music, uh, listen to my uh, podcast, you go to my website, coopertalk.net, I have over 840 episodes, email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net, uh, my Twitter is at coopertalk, Instagram, at coopertalk1, remember, I'm Steve Cooper, I'm only as hip as my guest, don't forget, drink your water, Eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.